Let me let me open us up in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks that we can come and consider your attributes, your self-existence, and your immutability. We pray that um, it wouldn't just be a dry time, but that it would uh, inflame our hearts with worship and praise towards you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so t- this morning we're going to be talking about the self-existence and the immutability of God. So when we talk about God, because um, we're going through in our series the attributes of God, there are two broad ways to categorize uh, God's attributes. Uh, and so the first half, we're going to be uh, focusing on the incommunicable gifts as opposed to the communicable gifts. And the incommunicable gifts basically means that the attributes of God that He doesn't share with man. So self-existence, immutability, compared to things like love or faithfulness, those are more communicable, right? Things that we can, in some lesser part, uh, have. And so we're going to be talking about these two attributes. Um, and so instead of trying to like, out, if, you know, if I was like really diligent, I would have tried to like weave a lesson that like combines these two, but we're just going to look at them separately. Um, so the first page is going to be the self-existence of God. <laughs> Alright, so the self-existence of God, uh, yeah, that first paragraph, uh, is a doctrine that basically teaches that God is independent from all things. He does not need anything. He is an independent being, or He is independent in His being. Um, so let's see. Ashley, can you read Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Yeah, so the first basic thing is that God was eternally self-existent. So in the beginning of all things, God. So that, you know, like, this is where, like, time begins. Or this is where the beginning begins. And God is, like, eternally right there. He's already there. Um, So that God is self-existent in His origin. Uh, And it's kind of like... Uh, whenever, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, I was always asked, like, oh, who's God's mom? Or, like, where did God come from? Or who created God? And so this is, like, a category that's, like, way beyond what we anything else, right? Because this is, again, God's incommunicable gift. So God has existed way back here. Um, and so in his origin. And I think, yeah, that's, it's just, I don't know how to... It's so abstract. I don't even know how to like conceive of that, but um, it's 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 intense, All right? So this is like billions of years. We're like a speck, and God is right here. Um, yes. Uh, so way beyond our comprehension, um, beyond totally different category. All right. Awesome. <laughs> We're gonna go on. Ciao. Can you read uh, Acts seventeen? Um, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Yeah, so, we'll, we'll take a look at, we'll compare later what it means that God is immutable and all, I mean, self-existent and all these things compared to us. But the first one we said was, he's self-existent in his origin so that he has no origin he's eternally self-existent uncreated uh but the idea that 
God, even in his ongoing existence, he is totally independent. He does not need anything. And it talks about two things, right? The first is he doesn't live in temples. So that God doesn't need like... God doesn't need a dwelling place. Um, Yeah, he doesn't need one. Um, And it's totally different from people, right? When we create things, we create them because we need things. So the man who creates a house... Morning. Morning. So the man who creates a house, right? Like we build it so that we can live in it. it. It protects us from the shelters. It protects us from... The allergens in the area protects us from uh, flies and stuff like that. Uh, but God builds things not because He needs it, beca- but because uh, He's well, not because He needs it, but He's totally independent from these things. He's, he does not need them. That's intense. Just, just pretend like you're being odd. Uh, <laughs> so God does not live in temples made by man. Uh, nor is he served by human hands. So, he, in a sense, he also is not dependent on our worship either. Um, so that whether people are, these are being served by hands, um, whether people are serving him by his hands, it's not like he is somehow dependent or he needs our, 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 I don't know, worship. Uh, compared to, again, people who, Let's see, people when they... Oh yeah, people who are like dependent on other people to affirm them, their like joys or disappointments are dependent on uh, what people say. Uh, when people like create tools, right? They create them so that it'll help them. They're dependent on these things that they've created, like a car, for example. Whatever. God... Uh, So God is totally independent, <laughs> self-existent. Um, sorry, dude, this is really s- small. I think Any that's questions? really interesting because, like, um, when I was a kid, I used to think that God asks us to worship Him and praise Him because He needs the strokes. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, that as we praise Him, God's like, ah, I feel good. You know, I feel complete. <laughs> um, but that He doesn't. Right, um, he would still be God. He would still be eternally happy in himself and glorified in, in of himself. If we don't do these things to him, he doesn't. He doesn't need us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then, then here's my follow-up question: Why? Why does God ask us to worship, or, or what is our worshiping doing to God if He doesn't even need it? Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Well, uh, we're gonna touch on that later. But anybody want to take a stab now? Why does why does God demand our worship if He doesn't need it? Because it's good for us. Because it's good for us. What do you mean? We receive joy and yeah purpose, right? Um, <laughs> worshiping Him. Yeah, and C.S. Lewis makes that argument when he talks about uh, in his book, The Reflection on the Psalms. He says that. Because uh, he like as he, and when you read the psalms, it talks about like rejoice, uh, lift up a song, uh, praise God, shout uh, from the heavens, uh, from the mountaintops. And the idea that like uh, when we worship God, that's that's what we were built, uh, created for, uh, and that's why uh, that's where we find ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction. And so God, in His mercy, is telling us, commanding us to worship Him. 
there's a second reason, but we'll we'll come return to that in a bit. Um, so when we withhold worship, it's not like we're hurting God or yeah keeping Him down. Yeah, I think uh, the the idea of the self existence of God it like totally humbles us because it reminds us that God isn't He doesn't need our worship. That even if we don't worship Him, He is eternally happy in Himself. Um, even if he if we don't worship him and he casts us to hell, he is happy, like Michael said. Uh, that's like a deep paradox. But he is he can be content even uh, when we don't worship him and he's judging us. Uh, and so the idea that whatever praise or worship that we offer to him is purely for our good, for our enjoyment. And I think it. Yeah, these are all. Um, sorry. Yeah, it's for our good. For our <laughs> it's not, I, mean, I have another follow-up question. Because yeah. I think this, this, this idea of the self-existence of God is really mind-boggling. Um, if God doesn't need us, um, is that something unattractive in God? Like, Do you know what I'm saying? I, I guess I'm playing the devil's mm. advocate. Like, Does that make God some sort of like uh, misanthrope, like some sort of loner? Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't need you, world. I'm here by myself. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So so we'll um. Well, I'm gonna turn that around. <laughs> what do you guys think? <laughs> the master teaching technique. <laughs> it's the same as the. That's what Neiman does when he teaches MCAT. What do you oh. guys? Think? <laughs> <laughs> that OCHEM question. <laughs> Why don't you tell me? So what do you guys think? The question was, um, if God doesn't need us, then is he this God who's like... Um, is he like the Grinch up in the mountain? Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's kind of like grumpy, doesn't care, isn't moved by our worship. Uh, I, I guess what I'm asking is, is he totally indifferent to us? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Is, is he like... People, I don't need them, but I made them. You know, like, like is that what... Um, so, there, so some people would say that God, because He is free from creation, that only because He's free from creation, He can be free for creation. And what that means is that because He's not dependent on our worship, um, because His happiness doesn't rise or <coughs> fall according to what we can offer to him because he's totally independent from us then he can be totally for us and we can be assured of that that God is eternally and independently from anything that we can do anything that we can ever say or do to him he is uh, a good God that he is for us and we see that most clearly later on Um, we'll see it later but then it talks about Jesus Christ right like uh, he does not change, that so he is eternally for us, and we can be assured of that. that he's not this um, stoic God. Yeah. So, does this uh, void like the. Because um, I hear a lot of things like when you see like Katrina or um, like school shootings happen where it's like, oh, God was angry mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Because if God is like constantly like, you know, who he is and it's not, he's not affected by what we do, then like, we can't really put him in a bad mood of like, you know, mm. and it, right? Things like that. Does that. So you're asking like, do we affect his emotional 
Sure, because I think I think state. I think what we're trying to say is that like like God takes joy when we worship Him and He He's pleased by it and like of course He's like hungry for like um, a close and intimate relationship with you, but at the same time He's He's like unaffected if He doesn't get it and like I feel like that's a paradox, right? Or that's yeah. a contradictory. Right? I don't know how to word it well. <laughs> yeah, because um, if you guys know like when like Haiti got hit by that earthquake or when tsunamis hit or like Hurricane Katrina. People are like these, like, fundamentalists, uh, like, you know, pastors will come out and say, like, this was God. And then that's, like, very unpopular, right? Because in our culture, God is, like, portrayed as, like, he's always loving, he's always forgiving, he's, he never wants to harm you. And so there's this contradiction where God is uh, sovereign and he is in control of everything, including nature, or the God who's loving. And a lot of times, people feel like, which way, they don't, they don't know, like, do we choose one attribute of God over another? Um, but the idea that God, again, is incomprehensible and we have to like balance and we have to walk in this tension of knowing that God, uh, in His sovereignty, yes, He ordained those things, but it doesn't take away, it doesn't um, diminish His other attributes of His love and so like that. And so sometimes it's like this deep mystery of like, how does that all work? Um, but... I don't know, is the answer. I feel like Eric's asked, there's embedded two questions in Eric's question. So that's the first question, how can God be loving and mm-hmm. at the same time be sovereign? The second question is, if God is self-existent, is he affected by us? Do we affect his emotions? Mm-hmm. You guys have any thoughts? Um, so there, there's, again, I should say that there's going to be like a lot of like overlap between the self-existence and the immutability. So if, I, if I'm redundant... Forgive me. This is why I paired him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now you see the connection, right? There's connection. It's like the master teacher who knew all along. Um, so we would say that God is unchangeable in his like being or in his purposes, but that but that when it comes to like how he interacts with people, that we can still affect them. So um, so we can't change like who he is, so we can't make him like any less good or any less loving or any less just. Uh, but we can change according to what the present situation dictates. We can change how he interacts with people at a given in a given circumstance. But we're all shifting and moving. Can you repeat that? Yes. So basically, we said that God is unchangeable in His being and His purposes and His promises. Uh, so that we can't change anything about his about who he is, like his goodness or his justice, uh, but that but that because God chooses to interact with people, we can change how he interacts with us. So that if you know if a child is good, it's not like God is going to like come and punish you know Father's going to come and punish him. Right? So God, he the way he interacts with people changes according to the circumstances of the situation. Uh, and we see that um, later on in like, um, Michael preached on it a couple weeks ago on Jonah when uh, Jonah goes and he's like telling the people of uh, Nineveh to repent. Then there, there's going to be a coming judgment and then the people will repent. They're sitting in sackcloth and ashes and then it says that God relented from the judgment. Does that mean that God changed somehow? No, but I, I don't think you need to necessarily go to the issue of immutability. But I mean, staying on the topic of self-existence, mm-hmm. um, 
I think there are there's two layers, right? Like God, we don't affect God, right? We don't uh, we don't he does he's not on an emotional roller coaster because of us, right? The way we are on emotional roller coasters with everything and everybody, God is completely self-existent. He doesn't need us, uh, but at the same time, He chooses to bind Himself and His happiness to us, to His people, mm. and so that until we are happy and safe in him he's unhappy right that's why the bible talks about god being grieved that's why the bible talks about um, him caring for us as a parent to a child i mean how can a parent be like i don't care about your child or i don't i mean whatever you do doesn't affect me absolutely i mean that metaphor is evoking god's deep 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 emotional um existence and so does that make sense God doesn't need us, but he chooses to bind himself to us. Yeah, because I'm, I'm like thinking about like how you said um, like God is not like emotionally, he's not going like, to be emotionally distraught every time like, you know, we, you know, we steal something or something like that. But, but then that, he is. Yeah, so I guess it's... Cause I'm so, like, so, so, uh, what, so what it is is in his being, he does not need us, so we do not affect him in his essence. Right, but we affect him by his choice. So he doesn't need us, but he chooses to tie his happiness to our well-being. So that when we are lost, when we are suffering, he feels it too. But not because he necessarily has to be like that, but he chooses to do that. Does that make sense? So his emotions with us is a choice, not a necessity. Is there like an illustration? Like, Is it like a guy and his dog like he doesn't need he's not broken when he sees his dog like you know roll in the mud he's not like oh my gosh you're you're an idiot but he's like i take joy in having this dog and i'm gonna is it something like that it is i mean i guess the bible does give us a metaphor because it talks about god adopting us Uh so imagine you go to an orphanage i mean it's not a perfect illustration because we are not god so we don't know what what is we, we have no idea what it's like to be completely happy in ourselves and be completely unaffected. No one can diminish our happiness. No one can affect us or destroy us or harm us. But it's like going to an orphanage and you see the orphanage and you see this you see all this ki- all these kids and you're like yeah, you care for them maybe, but you don't really love them. You don't know them. But you go to one kid and you say, "I'm going to adopt you." And what is that act? The, the act of adoption is you voluntarily saying, "Okay, from this point forward, I'm forever tied to your well-being. I'm going to be your father. I'm going to take you home and love you and care for you. And if you do drugs, if you get into a car accident, I'm going to be devastated. If you are happy and if you are doing well, I'm going to be happy. And I'm not going to be happy until you're happy. So you voluntarily choose that. We're beginning to approach in only shadows and, 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 and in a dim way what God is doing to us. Does that make sense? But, but no analogy, there is no analogy. That's why I was making fun of Eric saying, show me an analogy or show me a graph. There is none. How can we understand self-existence? There is no other example other than God. God is the only one. And even for us to talk about God's self-existence, we, we're using words without it being attached to as much meaning as other words. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like a nonsense word, because what does that mean, self-existence? We have no idea. 
Because let me tell you guys, I am not self-existent. My happy, I mean, when Christina's mad at me, I feel devastated. When Christina's happy and she's like, you know, talk sweetly to me, I feel great, you know? That's how I feel. My emotions go up and down based on Christina, not just Christina, but you guys. If you guys like snub me or say mean things to me, I go home and cry, right? <laughs> but if you're like, oh, you know, Pastor Michael, you're handsome, you're tall, I feel like, oh, I look in the mirror, I feel great. Um, so my well-being goes up and down completely based on what other people think and feel about me. God is not like that at all. How do we even understand that? Mm. I think even, even the Grinch, when he, when he goes up into the mountains and he says, I don't need people, he still needs something. You know, he, he finds his worth and identity in something. There's no such thing as a, non-ex- a self-existent being other than God. I feel like I, I regret missing last week's Sunday, Sunday school. <laughs> Don't lie. I can't comprehend. <laughs> <laughs> um. I, I, I think if you don't understand, then you understand. If you think you understand, then you don't. It's the opposite of what they told me at school. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sweet. We're going to go on. So yeah, we, God is, uh, yeah, the idea that God is, again, like totally un, uh, self-existent, independent, it's, it blows all categories. Um, but I think this last point is also uh, really interesting. Um, Neiman, can you just read John 5 and 17? Uh, yeah. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Yeah, so uh, both of these things are, in essence, talking about the Trinity, right? The idea that God, this is another reason why God is totally self-existent and doesn't need us, which is that throughout uh, this whole time here, and I'm, go- I'm going on, God, that God existed in a trinity in three people and three persons, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And that because of that, he had like this perfect, loving community. Um, I think C.S. Lewis is, is the one that said like, it was like a dance where people are like, the members of the trinity are dancing around each other. It's just like this eternally happy existence of people, of God, so that... Even within himself, he has this perfect community that everybody longs for. This, uh, where they they totally know each other, they totally love each other and for each other, uh, and because of that, they don't need anything. Uh, they don't. They didn't need creation. creation. They didn't need it, but rather it was like the overflow of their love, of their of their love, creating like these creative acts of creation um, and so even uh, that God was eternally self-existent even when it came to community and whatever community that we can add to him or give to him is so dim and so dismal compared to the perfect community that he has with um, in his own in himself in his own person uh, and I think that's so crazy uh, it's like going back to what Michael said about Christina, right? Um, yeah, the idea that he is dependent. Talk about Christina. Talk about Kim. No, <laughs> I'm self-existent. <laughs> no, um, yeah. Or when I'm with Kim, uh, we're eternally happy. All right, that's no. Uh, <laughs> when she says th- uh, things, or when we get into arguments, or you know, like uh, whatever else, 
Um, I'm not happy within myself. It, it depends on someone outside. Um, joys or disappointments, it comes, it's depending on, not, I didn't create her. It, on another <laughs> creature, right, outside of myself. <laughs> uh, but I think what's so amazing about the, the, the Trinity is that God is eternally happy in this wonderful, beautiful community. But then when he creates us, it's not like he's like, you guys are completely separate. Mm. He, he opens the circle, this dance. Like if it's a dance of three people, he opens a circle and he invites us in mm-hmm. into this community of love and fellowship and affirmation and happiness. I think that's really an amazing yeah. story. And if you, uh, if you read John 17, the, pr- the whole prayer, there's this one part where Jesus says that with that same love that you have for me, I love people. I lo-. And that's crazy that this like, okay, this eternal perfect love that God has enjoyed with himself, that Jesus has enjoyed from God. Jesus says, I love fallen sinners with that same kind of love. That this it's like this like intense, crazy love. I don't even know how to, what works. Well, to you, use you know what it is? It. It's like, you know, the best analogy is the ones that the Bible gives us. I mean, uh, when Christina and I, Christina and I are happy together, we weren't incomplete necessarily, you know, it was a great marriage, but we decided to have a baby. And it's like we voluntarily decided to open up our little circle to include one more person. Um, and that is exactly what God is saying. Because God says we are his sons, right? We're made in his image. And so he opens up the circle. And just like Judas, and now, now it's a dance of three people, God opens up the circle and he invites us. He invites us. Mm-hmm. When you have a baby, you'll understand. I'll finally be able to use all those baby analogies. But until then, my dog. Your dog. <laughs> my hamster. All right, let's go on. Um, so the self-existence, uh, not only is he independent as being, but he creates and causes all things to depend on. And so we're just going to fly through this because, um, let's see. Can you talk? Can you, no, <laughs> Hannah, can you read Colossians 1? What uh, Yeah, we'll skip it. Okay. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And he is before all things, and in him all things together. Yeah, and so the idea that God not only He didn't just like create creation and then now it's like this like clock that, you know, is just Taking on its own, so that it is somehow independent from God. But He says that He uphold in Him all things hold together, so that all of creation. And the Hebrews verse says the same thing, right? He upholds thing, all things by the word of His power. And so the idea that God, <clears throat> that everything, all of creation is still dependent on God. That, um, yeah, that if God were to all of a sudden disappear, it's not like somehow the universe would still exist, that somehow we can exist apart from him. But everything would just collapse, it would just implode. Uh, and I think that's crazy. So that even the person who, um, Michael used this analogy the other week, but um, even the person who, like the atheist, who spits at God and says that he doesn't exist, it can only do it because God is holding him up by his hand, uh, with his hand. So that the atheist is like standing on God or is upheld by God's power and he's saying that God doesn't exist. That's, I think that's so crazy that everything that we do, again, is dependent on God. Everything that the universe 
is depends on God's ongoing um, sustenance. Yeah, do you guys <laughs> have any comments or thoughts? Uh, let's let's go on then. Um, and therefore, then, how how does this affect us? How should we then act? Let's see, Tuck, can you read Job thirty eight? Yeah. Um, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Yeah, so this is, so for 30, well, five chapters, Job, this and Job, Job has been like complaining with his friends about like how God is like unfair or how God has wronged them, how um, he wants God to just end his life. And then this is the point where God comes into the picture and he says, he comes in the world, whirlwind, right? And he says, uh, and he just shuts him up by saying, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, and then he just goes, for like two chapters about like how small Job is and how big God is. And I think when we rightly understand how God is, again, existent, self-existent, He doesn't need us, He doesn't depend on us, and yet He chooses to bind Himself to us, He, we are upheld by who He is, that all these things should inspire just like reverent fear of who He is, um, that it causes all mouths to be stopped, so this whirlwind. Um... When we rightly understand who God is, it just stops us in our tracks. We can't say anything. Um, all we can do is worship Him, right? And that's the song that we're going to be forever singing, according to Revelation 4, uh, that He is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, for He created all things. Any questions or comments about the self-existence? Alrighty, let's. We have five minutes to uh, run through the immutability, and the immutability uh, basically means the un. What do you guys? Anybody want to take a guess? Unchanging. Yes, unchanging. Right. So that if you guys know, like mutants, they're like people who change or transmute. It's like when you in Diablo when you turn items into another item. So immutability means that God is unchangeable. Um, and so, let's see, we'll just, we're just going to do selected passages. Iris, can you read Psalm 102? Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Yeah, so when we think about nature, I think a lot of times it feels unchangeable. So every, you know, the seasons come and go. Uh, the sun rises every day, uh, and things have remained largely the same throughout, uh, what, from whatever we can tell. And yet, God says that even nature, the sun rising and the setting, that God is even more unchangeable, that these things will all wear out, uh, that these things will all um, be changed and pass away. But God is the same, and he, His years have no end. God doesn't change. He uh, according to time or uh, 
according to anything else, he is even more, I don't know, steadfast, or he's, a, he's like a rock that doesn't change. Um, uh, but now there are problem passages. Yeah, the, but there's a problem. Um, so, let's see. Tony. Yeah. Uh, so, well, let's talk about, uh, let me just read that. The immutability of God, however, does not teach the immobility of God. So, there's still change around him particularly in how, in how he relates to people or how people relate to him, but never in himself. So, Tony, can you read Jonah 3? Mm -hmm. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll just really quickly summarize uh, 1 Samuel. So basically, in um, 1 Samuel 15, 10 and 11, it says that God, God regrets making Saul king. But then later in verse 29, uh, it's not written there, but later in verse 29, God says, the God, is, God is not a man that he should regret. And so there's like all these passages that seem to say like, or like when God um, says like, I, you know, I want to destroy Israel and start over with Moses and Moses intercedes and God's like, okay, I changed my mind. Uh, the idea that like, what's, what's this, what's all these things about like, if God doesn't change, why is he, why does it seem like there are passages where he is changing his mind? So, um, the basic, uh, from what I was reading at least, the basic way that people try to understand this is that there's a difference between God's immutability and God's immobility, meaning that God, even though He doesn't change in His in Himself, so his, in His beings and His eternal purposes and His uh, promises that will all come to fulfillment, uh, God is still able to move, uh, that He still uh, experiences emotions, that He still... Um, changes how he interacts with people according to the circumstance. So basically that God acts differently in different situations, right? And so uh, so we see that in, How is that not a paradox? Or how is that not a contradiction? Yeah. Um, you want to elaborate? Um, God never changes but he changes his mind on occasion. <laughs> how is yeah. that not a contradiction? And so I think it's like these two opposing paradoxes, which is that God, so we're, we're not saying that God is stoic, right? But that he is personal, that he experiences emotions, that he relates to people differently according to different circumstances. And yet on the other hand, we're saying that God is, what, that God, and this is where we say that God, we think that God, we can know him totally. We cannot know him totally. Um, over here where God hides himself so that we can't know him so these are the two paradoxes that two extremes that we want to avoid God so God is infinite and so oftentimes we, we want to say that God is maybe he's immutable his immutability means that he is like totally impassable that he he isn't personal but we know that's not true and on the other hand we think that maybe God um, is totally unchangeable, so we know him totally, and yet we know that God is not that way, that he's infinite. And so we, there's these two, what seem like, uh, I don't know, this tension that we need to balance. And so, how God can not change in his character and yet change in his actions is hard to understand. Uh, I don't know, Michael. You wanna, you wanna, answer? 
Well, I mean, the way most theologians approach God relenting in Jonah 3, in fact, the older translations I like so much better, uh, it says God repented. Uh, but we take away that. We don't use that. That, that, that uh, translation is deprecated because repent has a connotation that you did something wrong. But repent is a really good word because it means that um, you've had a change of heart. It, relent just sounds very passive, but God had a change of heart. And the way people say, the way people try to understand it is they, they say that this is anthropological language. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, so anthropological basically means that we take like human actions and we try to use those things to describe God. And so because God is... Or maybe it's the other way. God is doing something. We have no access or understanding to what's going on. So he uses human language. It's, remember, what, like I said last week, God speaks to us in baby talk. So he, he kneels down, he, he comes to our level and he says, it's like I'm repenting, it's like I'm mm -hmm. changing. And we're like, okay, I think I understand that. Because God was doing one thing and then he <clears throat> changed 180 degrees, he does something else. How do we understand that? The language is not like that he's changing his mind like we change our mind. But that is like the closest analogy to what God is doing. Here's my follow-up question. Does that mean we can change God's mind? Like if we say, God, you're going to do this. God, please don't do that. And God says, you know, if you hadn't asked, but now that you did, I'm going to change my mind. Because we have an example of that in Abraham, right? God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham prays, has this conversation with God. God, don't do it. He wouldn't have this conversation if he didn't believe in God. He could actually change God's mind. So, can we change God's mind? Like when we pray, are we changing God? Mm -hmm. uh, the answer, one answer that I heard, read about was that we can change God's revealed plans, but that when it comes to His secret plans or the things that He has decreed secretly and the things that we don't know, that we can't change. Explain that in common language. So, the idea that God, there are certain things that God knows and only God knows. And there are certain things that God chooses to reveal to us. So, uh, let's see, what's an example? So, for example, like we, let let's say you pray. Okay, go ahead. Uh, this is, we know um, that there's a there's an elect that God has chosen certain people for eternal happiness in Him. And there are certain people that God has not chosen, um, but we don't know who the elect are. We don't know who the reprobate or the unelect are. Um, so that we don't when when we pray, we don't try to pray, oh God, um, let him. That let that person be elect, or let that person um, not be elect. Uh, but that we, we just pray according to what God has revealed to us, which is that those who repent can come to know Jesus. And so we pray that God would soften their hearts. We pray that God would um, reveal Himself, that He would reveal their sinfulness to them and how they need Christ. And so that's what God has revealed, and we don't try to tamper in the things that God has not revealed. Do you have another analogy? Yeah, I was thinking like, you know, let's say that you really want to marry Kim. So you pray to God, God, please let me marry Kim. Uh, let Kim be receptive, <laughs> you know. And so um, do you change God's plans? Uh, we have no access and idea of God's plans because these are eternal things. And so from a human level, the answer is yes. Prayer changes things, right? Uh, there's a passage in James, you do not have because you do not ask. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that assume that you asking changes reality? And the answer is absolutely. I hope that is an encouragement to prayer. Prayer changes reality. Prayer changes 
things. You do not have because you do not ask. You want to know why you don't have more of God? It's because you're not asking for God. But at the very same time, in his eternal self, in his eternal plan, God doesn't change. And so the way we, we can understand that is God's eternal plan was, well, I don't want to use you because, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with you. But let's say I was praying to, for God for Christina. Um, God says, okay, I want you to marry Christina, so I'm going to put it into your heart to ask me to ask for Christina. And then God says, because you ask, I, I will answer. But if you hadn't asked, I wouldn't have answered. Does that make sense? So you asking is still within God's eternal plan. But if you don't ask, you won't get. Mm. Is your noodle being cooked? <laughs> From the human perspective, we, prayer changes things. What you do matters. From the divine, eternal perspective, it's all already foreordained. It's already all predetermined. Even you're asking. Then if, if everything is predetermined, why don't you just lay in bed and stop courting Kim and ignore her phone calls and just lay in bed and do nothing? I'll tell you what will happen. She'll break up with you. <laughs> right? Wait a minute. I thought it's all preordained. Yes. But no. So it's similar to why we still evangelize even though there's an elect. That's correct. That's what uh, Eric was explaining about the invisible church. Invisible church. So your unbelieving friends and family members, you should absolutely evangelize them. You should pray for them like crazy. You should plead with God. You should talk with them. You should really try to win them over as if it completely depended on you because you change things. But from God's eternal perspective, it's already predetermined. <laughs> um, yes, that's I don't I don't even know how to explain that. Well, Michael did a good job. Uh, we're just gonna go to the last point, uh, which is that because of these things we can know that God is for us and not against us. Uh, let's just read. Tony, can you read just the Hebrews passage? Uh, six. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Yeah, so he said, uh, the author says that God, in order to show us, to convince us that he's, uh, that we can have strong encouragement, there are two things that God said. Or he promises it by two things, right? Two unchangeable things. The first is his word, his oath that he uh, that he had given, and the second thing is by his character, because it is impossible for God to lie. And so that knowing these things isn't just like this nice philosophical exercise, but it gives us strong encouragement to hold fast to the set to the hope set before us, um, so that we can know that God, uh, once he has adopted us once he has spoken that good word over us uh, that word of blessing over us in Christ Jesus we know that uh, we can run to him we don't have to uh, constantly fret about whether God is going to change his mind about whether he really loves us um, when we when we sin or when we have uh, when we struggle with addiction when we do whatever uh, we can know for certain that God that he's not going to change uh, that because those promises are not sealed according to our own actions or our own 
uh, weaknesses, but it's sealed according to his own word and his own character. So we know that God uh, is for us in Christ Jesus. Uh, and I think that's so incredibly encouraging and it gives us encur- uh, it gives us hope to keep striving that everything that we do isn't in vain. Any any other comments or thoughts before we close? That is encouraging that God has sworn an oath that he'll save me. I may change, but he won't change. <laughs> I mean, yeah, in, ter- in some ways, us changing is a good thing, right? We want to continue to grow and improve. But for God, he never has to change. He's already perfect. And because of that, we can find great encouragement. Uh, let's, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for who you are, your perfections. And we pray that as we continue to I think about these things as we go into worship, uh, that we would be encouraged to hold fast, to lay hold of you, lay hold of the hope that you have provided for us in Christ Jesus, uh, so that we can be eternally happy in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.